Welcome to the Solve for Greatness podcast with your hosts, Dr. G and Budima. This podcast hopes to inspire everyone to realize their own greatness, maximize their potential, and create massive impact. Let's do this. Jerome Lugo and Connor Scott are physiotherapists by day, co-founders of a mental health organization, the Zoop Network, by night, and are incredibly good-looking all the time. The thing I love most about these two legendary humans is their kindness. If you spend enough time with them, you'll know what I mean. Obvious, it's simply beautiful. The thing I admire most is how they have turned an incredibly dark and difficult time into something that not only helps themselves self-actualize and become the best version of themselves, but also helps others do the same. This is what the Zoop Network is to me, a physical manifestation of what it could look like to feel pain, help yourself and the people important to you, and then throw down a ladder so everyone else has the chance to do the same. It is with utmost gratitude that we welcome Jerome and Connor to the Soul for Greatness podcast. Welcome, brothers. Thank you so much for having us. I don't think we've ever had an, an intro like Mate, that. Mate, I've never had an intro like that. I, no one's ever called me good looking either. So this is, uh, we're off to a really strong start. <laughs> I know you said that this conversation, conversation might get a little bit heavy, but I wasn't expecting to cry at the intro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dr. G is actually very good at that. He's made a couple of our guests cry. Lately. Like from the get-go. Yeah, yeah. The plan is to collect some Soul for Greatness tears and then sell it on eBay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> jar, you got a jar ready. Yeah. Uh, awesome voice, awesome. Um, look, I think the first question I want to ask is what in the world is a Zoop? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one. Zoop doesn't have any like fancy meaning behind it. There's no Latin word or fancy Greek letters here. Zoop is just an idea. And it's an idea that started in the midst of lockdowns and we can talk all about the Zoom network. But the, the actual story behind the name is part of the, the upbringings of Zoop was basically like a, a wellness challenge. And one of the guys doing the wellness challenge was doing a run, okay? And he usually does these 5K runs at really, really quick pace, like four-minute pace. And one day he posts up his run and he's run 20 kilometers, and all of us in the group are like, how the hell did you just run 20Ks when all of us are struggling with our own fitness? And he said to us, I usually run down this route and every single time it's a 5K loop and every time I do it, like it's nice and easy. But sometimes I just take a left turn and as I take that left turn and I kind of surprise myself, I just go, I'm just going to zoop it this way. I'll just zoop. And he turns left and before he knows it, he's run a completely different loop and he's run 20 kilometers at an amazing pace. And from then on, he just kept saying to us, like, sometimes I'll just do something completely different. I'll just zoop over there and I'll zoop this way. And to us, I guess what it kind of means is like, it's a one way to kind of trick and hack like your well-being practices by doing something completely different, a little bit outside of your comfort zone, something that requires a little bit of vulnerability. And now it's kind of, we're hoping to get it Listed on the dictionary. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Merriam-Webster. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he was yeah. having he was having a tough day, 
And that's why he decided to zoop in a different direction. And we'd organized through lockdown, we'd, whenever we, would, we didn't do our well-being goals, we put $50 into this bank account. And we were actually on one of those trips away. So all that money that we saved up through lockdown, we'd go away to Sandy Point near Wilson's Prom. We'd just all accommodation, food, drinks, everything was just paid for from this kitty. And he, he was telling us this story. And I reckon we were on a loop for about four hours of just whenever someone did, did something, it was zoop, zoop. And we were like, is this, is this something? Is yeah. it, have, have we got something here? And it, it kind of stuck. Yeah, it started as an inside joke. Now, now it's just expanded. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Quite literally, the road less traveled, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Love that. What an analogy. If you have a bad day, just zoop in another direction. <laughs> I freaking love that. <laughs> yeah. So, boys, I, I love the story behind the word zoop, but there is a bigger story behind the zoop network. What is that story? Yeah. So, this story probably starts in. Well, for me, it starts in 2018. I'd had a few difficult life challenges come up. Uh, my parents separated. My auntie, who was like a best mate, she passed away from alcohol-induced liver disease. And my mum's sister married my dad's brother. So just before it gets a little bit weird, we were like this close-knit family. And she passed away. And then a couple of weeks later my four-year-long relationship broke down. So I just kind of had everything that I felt like I kind of loved taken away from me at that moment. And I probably struggled in silence for, for a long time. I, di- I didn't really talk about it. And then kind of the, year, the years go on and I'm just struggling more and more and it gets into, gets into lockdown. And I was like, oh, this is not what I need right now. And it became kind of an anxious thought in itself to, to talk about it. I didn't quite have the courage. I thought I was being weak. I'd never really faced so much adversity that I couldn't deal with it. I always held myself to an account that I could just get through anything. And it got to a point where it became the kind of the happiness facade became a little bit too much. And I decided at that moment to attempt to take my own life. And luckily, that didn't happen. And the next day, I text Jerome and I just said to Jerome, mate, do you have time for, time for a quick chat? And if anyone knows Jerome, he doesn't reply to you. He, he kind of has a three to five business days uh, <laughs> model <laughs> of replying. And... He called me and I reckon it would have been about 30 seconds. 30 seconds went past and he called. And I, it was just my chance to get everything that I've been feeling off my chest. And he, he just managed to do something that I didn't expect him to do, which was just listen. And he just listened to me vent and he listened to me talk, talk it through. He just held that space for me to feel like I wasn't going crazy for lack of a better word. And from there, he, he kind of said to me, he's like, look, mate, I, I know that you've been struggling. I've kind of been watching from afar, but I haven't really known how to, how to help you. He's like, but one thing that I am noticing is that I've known you for years and you always loved running. You've always loved it. 
and I know that you're not doing it. He's like, so what we're going to do, and Jerome can kind of talk you through what was going through his mind here, but he's like, what we're going to do is we're going to go for three runs a week, three kilometers, three runs, and then you're going to post receipts of your runs. So if you don't post a receipt, you haven't done it. And every Friday, we're going to have a phone call to check in on how the runs are going. And if you don't do it, you owe me $50. And if I don't do it, I owe you $50. And it was just that little bit of accountability to look after myself in a physically and mentally. But it became more than that because it became those Friday check-ins were less about the runs and more about the checking in on how I was doing. Jerome kind of tricked me. He, tri- <laughs> he tricked me into thinking he cared about how much I was running. But it didn't take one week or two weeks or three. But after, you know, four, five, six weeks, it became, you didn't run this week, mate. Like, why didn't you run? And those conversations started to become more and more like a check-in, a check-in on, on how I was going. And yeah, looking back, it was like that, that accountability that catapulted my confidence in a sense to, to reach out and talk and realize the benefits in, in being vulnerable and opening up and not holding it all in. And just, I guess, taking like the next step there is that what started as an accountability challenge between Connor and I, we suddenly had 10 other of our close uni friends join in. And again, those conversations, if you can recall, we're in the middle of a lockdown. So as much as I just wanted to be by Connor's side, get to his house and just play video games with him and just like hang out and just be a friend, we couldn't do that because of lockdown. And what we had instead was 10 people talking about their well-being goals and their challenges throughout their week. And as Connor said, it, it was an accountability challenge, but what it allowed for was more meaningful moments between friends as we started to talk about not just what, how the runs were going, but really checking in about how we were actually feeling. And it took one moment of vulnerability for Connor to start telling the rest of the boys, which is such a courageous feat in a 10 male, like alpha dominant group yeah. of boys. And he started talking about the things that he was going through. And as soon as he did that, the domino effect started and other people started talking about what they were going through. And there were things that we wouldn't have known otherwise had we not been able to have these conversations. And then what we found was that just our friends, it was also our family members because they started getting involved in this challenge. And then there was other friend groups and they were getting involved in this challenge. And suddenly these conversations started to become a little bit more normal. And then as we got out of lockdown, those challenges kind of went by the wayside, but we realized a couple of things that were, I guess, truths in the world, at least the things that we'd learned from that experience with Con and us, was that one, normalizing vulnerability is probably a good idea to helping break down the barriers for people to talk about how they're feeling. Two, self-care and well-being <laughs> behaviors are a lot better when you get to do them with other people and if they keep you accountable. And three, we have to destigmatize talking about mental health because if we can't talk about it and we can't see it, then we can't change <laughs> it. And that kind of leads us to where we are now. Yeah. It sounds like you're, you're living and breathing that saying, um, the quality of your conversations determine the quality of your relationships. So you getting into that vulnerable state, you just create a much, much stronger relationship and a stronger bond. That's the thing. It's... It- in lockdown, when we were having all these conversations and we were, it started with, oh, how's your day? Uh, yeah, 
pretty shitty. I've just been sitting at home, not, li- not able to leave my house. Oh, how's the weather today? And it turned into you're doing meditation as a practice, a well-being practice, and you haven't quite got there yeah. this week. Like how, why is that? Or how's stuff going at home? Or how are you managing this situation? And to be honest, those, those uni mates that we started this, this group with, we hadn't been in a great deal of contact with them since we left uni. Mm. Our conversations were based around going to the pub, having a few beers and, you know, feeling hungover on the Sunday and texting in the group chat, oh, good night, lads. That was great. Whereas now we were actually building friendship and connection. We were getting to know each other. These are people that we'd known for five, six years and I was learning stuff about them that I'd not figured out in the, in the five, six years I'd known them. But in this couple of months of a harsh lockdown and the conversation now that I have with those uni mates is less, how's work, mate? How's your day? It's deeper connecting questions that have now formed the, the quality of our friendship. Yeah. I love the juxtaposition there because you have to have a little bit of a competitiveness streak to, if you are being held accountable, then you got to have some answers. You know, you got to have some answers because you get, you got to, you got to dig deep and find the answers. And it's like, why haven't I done that? And if I don't want to share that, why don't I want to share that with the group? Yeah. So I think it worked. I think it's such a genius move (laughs) to to not just, you know, uplift yourself because like, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. So you lift each other up together, you know, as a group. Yeah. With that challenge as well, and as it started, the beauty of it was that everyone had their own individual goal. It wasn't like everyone had to go run three three times a week. Like some yeah. of the goals varied and some of it was like meditate five days a week. One of the girls wanted to learn how to do chin-ups, so she had to practice chin-ups. One of the guys wanted to practice handstands. And so it was less about yeah. being competitive in the sense of I'm trying to run faster and better than you. It was more so... I just want to get my stuff done and be, and be held accountable for that. And that allowed us to celebrate other people's wins and also celebrate other people's losses because there is some beauty in that as well. And yeah, all those pillars that we kind of learned from that experience and now hold up what the Zoop Network is now. So Connor, you, you reached out to Jerome after you had attempted to, to end your life. What stopped you from sending that text before you attempted? I think the whole story is Jerome kind of knew that this wasn't the first time. There's a, there was a time when Jerome and I were actually away on holiday together. And that was probably the first time that I'd seriously contemplated it. And I had brought that up to him before. And his reaction to that helped me understand that I knew he was someone that would support me. Because when I told him the first time, he just told me how much he loved me. And he was like, mate, you've got so much to offer. Like, I love you so much. Wow. We haven't spoken about this, Jerome. Uh, <laughs> Jeez. But yeah, so I, I think I knew. I knew the type of person that he was. And I knew that... He was someone that would, no matter what I did, he had my back. And that had come across through the years of being mates with him. Drum and I were quite competitive in a friendship sense. We were both kind of the life of the party. We were 
were both in the same space in terms of socially. And it was kind of an alpha battle in a sense, even though <laughs> if you put us anywhere, in any other situation, we weren't alphas, but in our situation, we were alphas. And <laughs> like four foot five, yeah. like definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it always stemmed in uni from like, who could have the better questions? Who could go the deepest? Who could answer this question the best? Like there was always these little things, this competitiveness between us, but it was deep rooted in respect for each other. And I knew I could go to him if I had any problem whatsoever. And especially once I reached out to him that very first time when we were on holiday together, I knew that he was going to be someone who listened. And I spoke to him. We actually went on another holiday together and I said to him, I brought up the, that competitiveness between us. And we're sitting in Noosa. I don't know if you remember this, but we're sitting in Noosa on like this rock, the beautiful sunset going at the time. And I said to him, I was like, we've always been a bit competitive with each other, but I hope you know that's only because I respect you so much. And because of who you are, I just want to be more like you. And I knew wow. that, I, I, I just knew that text message was, yeah, I just knew he'd have my back at that time. But I guess, G, to your question of why didn't I send that text message beforehand, before the attempt was I felt weak. I felt weak. I felt, I felt like I didn't want to, I didn't want to be there. And I, I didn't feel like I could be saved uh, if I couldn't save myself. And I didn't want to be a burden. And I thought it was easier to not be a burden to those who cared than, um, I thought it was easier to, to end it all rather than be, you know, be an issue. Thank you so much for sharing, Connor, and, and for sharing your, your story and, and your truth. I, yeah, I, I just find it, actually, I love the fact that we're so similar. We're more similar than we are different. You know, just hearing your story, there's a lot of similarities with my upbringing as well. Like I, I actually lost um, two uncles to, to alcohol-related illnesses. And my parents also got divorced as well. And I also contemplated suicide. Um, but I, I wanted to ask, you know, growing up in a culture where vulnerability was very much seen as a weakness. And as we grow older, myself and the people around me, we've learned that vulnerability is definitely not a weakness, like, like you said before. And, and it does create longer lasting, more, um, how can I put this? I think it, it just, it's it's more you can have a more enriching and fulfilled life if you share that part of yourself, you know. But how do you do it? How do you go against like those years and years of conditioning? Like if you could speak to that part of yourself or that that person, the person that you were, how do you do it? Because <laughs> I'm I'm still learning how to do it myself. I, I wouldn't say I do vulnerability very well. I think I'm very much on on like a journey and just learning it by doing it. But, you know, again, I completely understand and I completely relate to you because I didn't want to feel like I was a burden either. Because, you know, there were even times in my past where I confided in people and it was then further reinforced that it was a weakness and that you just you just put your head down and you get on with it, mate. You, you don't think about those things. You push them down as deep as you can and you just get on with it. Yeah, but... How do you do it knowing what we know now? 
I think it's a great question. And I'm going to challenge you on the fact that you said that you're not very good at vulnerability after what you just said, because <laughs> that showcases that you are pretty good at vulnerability, but I must have, um, I wouldn't, mate. Say, I wouldn't sell yourself so sure. <laughs> <laughs> And these competitive guys are really getting on my ears. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> but also, thank you for sharing because, like you said, if you if you don't think you're very good at vulnerability, that was a perfect example of it. But how how do you do that from like a cultural standpoint, like when it's been ingrained into you? I think that's where we're not so dissimilar either, but because where I grew up was a a pretty tough place to grow grow up. I'm from Liverpool in England and men are men, you know, and talking mm. about your feelings is not being a man. And we went through some really tough times and money was out of virtue and we didn't have that much support, but no one spoke about it. You got through it by being funny and by being kind. That was your way of getting yeah. through things. Like if something's gone on in your life, no one wants to know you've just got to be funny. So I always thought that talking about it was weakness too. And I never really heard the word vulnerability until a couple of years ago. And I didn't have a way of doing it. It was, I've either got to talk about this or I'm gone. And mm. that was kind of where I was at at that point. And I think you've brought up an interesting topic of when you have confided in people that, yeah, yeah, they've kind of validated the fact that it is weakness in a sense. And Movember did some research recently, which was 40% of men regret opening up. Mm, yeah. Huge statistic. So we can talk about vulnerability till the cows come home, but if we don't know how to hold the space and we don't know how to listen to someone opening up, then yeah. opening up is not the is not the key to, to life. So what Jerome did with me was he held the space. He listened. He didn't tell me that I shouldn't think this way or what are you talking about, mate? It was just listen, just listen to me, just support me and just say, mate, I've got your back no matter what. And that was yeah. the key. And I think for me being vulnerable was picking my people, was picking someone who I kind of thought was going to do that. Because if Jerome didn't do that, like you said, it would have validated the fact that, okay, well, this isn't normal. I shouldn't mm. be feeling this way. And it's one of those things where I don't understand why, why we think that way, why it's so stigmatized, why talking about your mental health is, is viewed as, as weakness and why we can't hold space for that. What do you think, Jerome? Yeah, I... I Completely agree in terms of like, if you're wondering like, how do I really engage in being vulnerable? And, and again, when we keep saying this, like this buzzword vulnerability, all it really means is like letting yourself be completely authentic, open yourself up to judgment and be like yourself realistically. And in order for you to be able to do that, you need to be able to trust the other person on the other side because you have to have a a relationship in which you can trust that they will hold a safe space and they're not going to judge you for your thoughts and your actions and you can really be yourself and you can own your own story and they're going to hold on to your story without giving you any judgment. I think 
one of the issues, and this is part of, I guess, like why we do what we do, is that normalizing vulnerability is probably a key to helping people hold space together. And as you were saying before, in the cultures that we've grown up in and lived in, vulnerability has been seen as a weakness, but now we're noticing that it is a strength. And one of the, just a way that I've tried to conceptualize this is that if vulnerability is a weakness and we're not allowed to talk about how we're actually feeling and the things that are genuinely going on in our lives, it would be like, Dr. G, if I came to you, right, it would be the same as this. And I had a, an illness and I had all these symptoms, felt like I was really, really sick and it feels, like, it feels like I'm going to be on my deathbed. And I come to you for some advice as a doctor, but I'm not allowed to speak and I can't use my hands and I can't mouth any words and I can't articulate anything. I can't communicate anything. And you just look at me blankly and you're like, why is this guy here? Like, what are we doing here? And I, on the internal side, I'm saying, I'm thinking, I'm saying in my head, I've got like, I've got flu-like symptoms, man. Like, help mm. me out. But I can't talk. Yeah. I've got duct tape over my yeah. mouth and my hands are tied behind my back. And so yeah. what we're left with in this culture is people that can't open up. They can't communicate actually how they're feeling. And that's because we're worried about, do I actually have a safe space to actually be able to talk about these things? Or am I going to be viewed as weak? And so when we break down those barriers, I think that allows for a space that we can be vulnerable and we can be our authentic self. But then the next stage for me, at least, when I'm, you know, opening myself up to some of the judgment, like one is humility and something that I've had to kind of learn with like some of my best mates is that I don't need to be perfect and I am not perfect and that I do have a, like a true and honest and authentic story that is not right. The second is like having faith and just putting yourself out there. And three is like courage. But these three things sound like they should be like really, really difficult. These are adjectives of yeah. faith and courage and it sounds really hard. But the reality of it is that it shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be hard for us to be able to talk to our best mates and say, man, I'm struggling right now. Because if it is that hard, then it's kind of like going to the doctor and having your hands tied behind your back and having duct tape on your mouth and not being able to speak about the things that are going on with you physically. And that is just silly. A lot of these feelings are, it's fueled by shame. So for whatever reason that might be from whether you think it's, you think it's not right or you've been taught that it's not right and, or you feel ashamed of feeling the way that you're feeling. And I think Brene Brown talks about this really nicely. Mm -hmm. The antidote to shame is acceptance and empathy. As soon yeah. as you receive acceptance and empathy, shame cannot survive. But unfortunately, we still have this little stigma around, around talking about this, that shame is then fueled if you don't get the acceptance and empathy that you need in that moment. Jerome, the duct tape analogy and the getting your hands tied behind your back analogy, who puts the duct tape on? Is it the person sitting in the consult room or is it the, the doctor or society or both? I think it's both. I really do think it's both. By the way, I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. That is not my concept, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out Brene Brown. If you're listening, I copyright. Yeah, yeah. No, that's all yours. But uh, Brene. I think it's the person themselves. I definitely think if 
if the doctor on the other side isn't holding your safe space and, you know, there isn't empathy and there isn't acceptance or we don't have the faith that there will be, then, yeah, the handcuffs come on. And then definitely cultural. I mean, if we grow up and live in a society in which, you know, no one talks about things, then it's completely normal to have your hands tied behind your back and, and you to be duct taped when you go to the doctor. Like that's just what yeah. everyone else is doing. So then why should I be any different? Why should I take off the duct tape and start talking about the things that I'm going through? And I actually had a really interesting conversation with a, um, he's a counselor at a school and we were talking about vulnerability and why there is such a huge cultural disconnect when we're talking about these two different ways of looking at vulnerability. Even though on my side, I live in a bit of a bubble as we talk about it and we view it as strength. There are plenty of other older generations that don't view it as a strength. And we were discussing about, you know, say 40 or 50 years ago when there was world wars or wars or, or even civil wars and people had to grow up really, really, really tough. And yeah. we, you would go through some absolute significant trauma. But as soon as you got away from that trauma, it would be really, really weird if you started actually talking about stuff. And they actually asked you and mm. told you to stop, like, push it down. And the way that they treated mental health conditions in that day was also significantly different as well. And so then you have potentially an entire generation of people that have got significant trauma, but also have duct tape on their mouth and hands tied behind their back and aren't able to articulate, you know, what they're actually feeling. And then that trickles down and goes into the next generation. Then it goes to my generation. When I think about my parents, my dad has like three different years. One is very, very happy and he's the life of the party and he's dancing. The second is like a little bit more quiet and he just communicates in grunts. And the third is like just content. But not one of those is really about opening up and being vulnerable. And so I think we're at a stage now where... To answer your question, G, I think this is where we need to start taking off the duct tape and trying to see if we can get rid of the handcuffs. Yeah, I'd also like to add that I think it's got to do with <laughs> for taking myself back and the state that I was in. I I didn't know I didn't have the vocabulary to explain it either. I I, I think that's probably got to do with society not equipping us with the tools that we need to even just understand or even conceptualize just what the hell is happening internally. You're just not aware. You just There's no self-awareness. So you're just caught by the torrent of emotion and, and thoughts. And that then reinforces further thought patterns. But then you can't talk about those things because society doesn't allow it or you don't have the tools to do it. Yeah, I think just taking myself back to when I was in that position. That's, that was probably what was really holding me back. Are you saying, Buddha, that you didn't even know that you had duct tape on? Is that what you're trying to say when you, don't, you didn't have the vocabulary? And no, I, I didn't even know it was duct tape. I, I didn't even know what it was, what the duct tape was. Right. Like I didn't... It's, it's as if I've never seen duct tape before. So <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like you... You can't even, you don't even know how to diagnose the problem in yourself and you don't know how to talk about it because you don't have the vocabulary to do it. Yeah, um, you, you've got all these these feelings and these yeah. emotions and I think I had three emotions, happy, sad and angry. So when... Yeah, when it's like my were, dad. It's, yeah. like <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a children's <laughs> book. Exactly. <laughs> Man, I, I, I go through that on my way to work. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> but yeah, so like when 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 you're feeling something different and you're like, but this isn't happy, sad or angry. And I don't know how to describe this one. I just feel like there's an elephant standing on my chest or I feel like I can't breathe and I, I feel like I can't get out of bed. This is maybe sad, but it's something else. Like this is this is not what I've learned. Like I don't know how to describe this. I feel like I need one of those mm. Mr. Men emotional cards where I can just flip through the hundred <laughs> different emotions and go, yeah, which yeah. one is this that I'm feeling? I don't actually, know, I don't know, yeah. I don't know the word that it is. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I, I remember once I went to my mom and I was like, "Mama, I think I'm depressed," and she's like, "What are you talking about depressed? What do you have, to, what do you have to be depressed about?" <laughs> That's something that I really like vividly remember. But it's yeah, I think you know, just those small little react uh, interactions. It was. It happened in a matter of seconds, but you remember it for, you know, almost a lifetime. But that's almost yeah. something you tell yourself. Yeah, you f- you feel these emotions, and then you go, "But what do I have to be depressed for? Like I've got yeah. a roof over my head. There's so many people doing it worse. Like I've got a job. I've got a car. I've got money. Like, why? What have I got to be depressed about? But I think maybe there's a there's an element of you don't really quite know who you are and what you want and you've kind of been wearing a mask and you haven't truly been yourself or you haven't kind of explored that. So really you don't know who you are. So mm. therefore you can't be happy within, within yourself. How do you find out who you are? Usually you have Monday morning sessions with Dr. G. <laughs> 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 nah, that's not a good enough answer. <laughs> <laughs> so now it does feel like a Monday morning we talk to Jim. <laughs> I love that question of like, who are you and how do you find out who you are? And I think it starts with like owning your story and understanding your story and knowing where you come from and who you come from and what biases and what experiences and memories have made up the person that you are. And then understanding like, what that person has been created and then the person that we are now, like what does that person value and what are the values for that person? And then if you can answer those two things, like what's your story and can you own the story? And then what are your values? I think that's a pretty solid stepping stone to figuring out who are you and what's your authentic self, I think. And Jay, you, you have a very specific process for this. Do you mind sharing? I, I loved it when you when you shared it with me recently, actually. Uh, if only I could remember what I said to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me text you. <laughs> no, no, no. About the, uh, the, the journaling and the, the questions you ask yourself. Yeah. So I, I was describing to G a little bit ago that I've got this journal con and I, I journal pretty regularly, um, particularly over the last couple of years. And there are maybe four or five quotes and four or five values that consistently I will journal about just to remind myself who I am and where I've come from and what stories have made up the person that I am. And as I'm writing through the journals about experiences and things that happen, I will tend to find out that they match up to a quote that makes me think who I am, like that's ingrained in my identity or a value. And in the spirit of vulnerability, let's go through them. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to hear one. So my, um, so my four values and the things that I try to 
I guess, ground myself to remember who I am as a person. And these are things that I think have really, really helped me in the past. And I can only speak from anecdotal experience, but they've really helped me in the past when I've found turmoil, like really significant adversity, or even when I'm finding really, really good times and just anchoring myself in these four values. And these are the things that I view as like, who is Jerome and what's his story? I think they're based on these four things. And one of them, they actually end up being a, uh, an, not an anagram, an acronym for my name. So my, my name is Jerome Christo Benedict Lugo, J-C-B-L. My four values are joy, courage, brilliance, and love. And within everything that I do, I try to anchor back to, am I having joy? Am I actually having fun? Am I making it fun? And if it's a really adverse situation, can I find the light in it? Or can we make it fun? And it doesn't always have to be that way, but can I find joy in even in the darkest times, courage. Can I find the courage to be able to step out of my comfort zone and do something that I don't want to do or that will definitely benefit me but is going to be hard? Brilliance. Brilliance in the sense of a work hard and you know, don't let anyone beat you on like work ethic but hold myself to a higher standard and love, which is pretty simple. Like love, kindness, be there for others, be able to talk to others. And these are also ingrained in like four different quotes of, that I've picked up over the years that have really stuck true to me. And every time I'm a little bit lost, I just go back to this journal and I'm, I think, okay, that's right. This is where I'm at. Are we going to be vulnerable and share those ones? Too? I feel like I'm just talking. <laughs> uh, what do you think the answer to that question is, bro? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. That's his check, mate. Mate, there's 30 love. <laughs> in the- Imagine if we said no. <laughs> no, we don't want to hear that, man. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So they're, they're my four like values. And then there's four quotes over the years that, again, I always look back on and I think, who am I when it comes to this situation? And these are the ones that I always fall back on. The first one is humble and hungry. And it's something that I wrote on my whiteboard when I was like 14 or 15. And the quote underneath it said... Wow, I've never told anyone this, by the way. I'm, I'm doing excited. it on a pod. Oh. oh, wow. What have you done to me, G? <laughs> oh. <laughs> You've done it again. It's great. You, you share that greatness, man. Yeah, Let's share it, brother. Thank you. So, in advance. Humble and Hungry is something that I wrote when I was 14 or 15. I wrote it on a whiteboard and underneath it, it said, the people before you have given up so much for you to be in the position that you are today. Your grandmother, your parents have sacrificed their lives for you to be in a position where you are. So you need to be humble and you need to be hungry because you need to be able to, I guess, make it work for them because they've given up so much for you to do what you are able to do. The second one, and this is about courage, is the man in the arena. I'm not sure if you guys have heard the man in the arena yeah, quote love by the man in Teddy the Roosevelt. I think it's Teddy Roosevelt. And every time I'm in a position in which I'm like, this is scary. I'm not sure I want to make this decision or I'm at a crossroads. And I'm, this is actually particularly when I really, really always come back to it is when I get self-conscious and I start thinking about what do other people think of me, particularly when I'm making a decision and times in which that's been the case is say when there's like, if I'm doing a public speech or if I'm speaking in front of all like a university, which like I was a president of our like physiotherapy society I felt like there was like lots of pressure and I wasn't sure whether or not I was making the right decisions. 
And I would just come back to, it's all about the man in the arena. It's not about other people. It's about having the courage and just coming back to the fact that there's no one else that can really judge you unless they've been actually in your shoes and they've been bloodied, sweaty and muddied and dirtied by being in that arena. Um, the third one is to do with love. And it's, I don't think it's actually a quote, but Mick Storr, who is our physiotherapy coordinator back at uni, he said something along the lines of being a man of commoners and kings in the sense of you can be someone that can talk to people of, you know, <laughs> who live in Brighton and, mm. and other people from lower socioeconomic statuses. But what it really means to me is that everyone is human and everyone deserves love and everyone deserves respect and everyone deserves kindness, whether or not they're a commoner or a king, it doesn't really matter. And everyone in between is, they're a human. And the last one, and this one has stayed with me for the longest time. And it's my favorite quote because there's such a backstory to it and a YouTube video that Con actually showed you that the other day. And it's, the quote is, this is water. Ah, the idea yeah. behind it is there's two fish and yeah. they're young fish and they're swimming in a uh, little aquarium. And an older fish swims by and he goes, G'day guys, how's the water today? And the two fish swim by and they're like, the hell is he talking about? What the hell is water? And if you follow along David Foster Wallace's speech of This Is Water, it's a commencement speech on YouTube and I highly recommend listening to it. It really talks about having perspective and having the ability to choose how you want to react in a situation. That a true education is about learning that you have the option to choose and that you don't have to rely on your default setting, which will be, I guess, being reactive. You have the opportunity, you have the ability within yourself to be able to choose how you want to perceive any type of event that occurs your way. And I really think that perspective has been a bit of a superpower when it comes down to having adversity. So then when I go through my journal, I'll often start a new journal book with like kind of reciting what those values are and how they've changed over the years and whether or not I'm kind of sticking with them. And then also about what those quotes are and whether or not I've had experiences that have matched up with those things. That's beautiful. Jay, yeah. I want to give you a hug, bro. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I absolutely second that. That this is what a commencement speech from David Foster Wallace is. Yeah, I love that. I'm curious now, Connor. What are your values? Oh, here we go. <laughs> Let, let's get you to compete. Who has better values? <laughs> <laughs> I think I said earlier in the podcast I wanted to be like the bloke next to me. So mine are. It's a two way street, bro. <laughs> yeah. So weird. You got like two blokes that are trying to be like each other. You've basically <laughs> just got one person on this pod. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot recently. And I think my number one value is kindness. That comes before anything. Kindness, but it's funny when I think about it because when I really delve into it, it's kindness to others and not so much kindness to myself. Yeah. It's something I am working on. But when it's something that I hold so 
so deeply to me. Like I even look at other people and kind of go, just be kind. Like all I, all I think is this world needs kindness. And if you've got kindness, we will be such a better place. But to be kind to others, I'm figuring out that I really need to be kind to myself. And if I'm kind to myself, then I can be kinder to others. So it's like this, this cycle that I'm trying to kind of put myself in to go, well, why don't I start with myself? And why don't I love myself in order to be kind and then love others? Because I don't think you can do the best job if you don't start with yourself first. Do you want to know the rest of my values? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Another one, respect. I know we see it on all our primary schools. You know, you know, primary school and it's like respect, integrity. But respect to me is being able to accept others for who they are and treat others like they want to be treated. So I think it's an interesting point to what we used to see on school was treat others like you would like to be treated. And I don't think that's true. I think you treat others like they want to be treated. Because if I treated everyone like I like to be treated, I think that's quite selfish. Mm. So yeah, I think treating others the way they want to be treated, Mm. which then leads me to like listening. Like I've got to listen to others and hear their story and listen to their values and listen to what makes them tick. Because if I'm not doing that, then I can't do any of my values. I can't be kind. I can't respect them. And I can't can't treat them the way they want to be treated if I don't listen. So I think they, they are my key values. Yeah, I just want to, thanks so much for sharing that, Connor. Uh, I just want to add that treating others how they want to be treated, that's empathy, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think mm-hmm. empathy is a, is a superpower, as Jerome said, with perspective. And I've learned over the last probably three, four, five months is the perspective to choose. Well, we have the, yeah. we have the choice to be empathetic. It's like I got a haircut. Like I'm going to, a little bit of an anecdote here, but I got a haircut on... Friday, hated it. Absolutely hated it. <laughs> That's why I'm wearing a hat. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't like the haircut. It was a new barber. He was a young guy and I really didn't like it. But for me, I'm not going to tell him that I don't like it. At the yeah. end of that thing where he's like, how's that look, mate? I'm always going to say good. There's no matter what, like I'm always going to say good. <laughs> but it's about empathizing with something that might not be true. So I know for, he looked tired when I walked in and he was drinking a coffee and he looked a little bit overwhelmed. So I told myself that he's been worked to the bone and he's struggling with something else going on in his life and he couldn't quite give me 100% of his time to do a good haircut. So that might not be true. I don't know, but I just empathized with that story that I, that I told myself and thought, well, my hair will grow back. Like it's not an issue. I can wear hats Mm. for the next few weeks. It's empathizing with the person and with the human and noting that we can just be kind if we empathize. Yeah. When you said being kind to others and not to yourself, like something just clicked in my, in my head and it's just a bit of, bit of a callback to what we were talking about at the beginning. And, you know, when you were sharing your incredibly um, courageous story and really interested to get your thoughts around it as well. But the whole idea of reaching out to someone, I think because in your mind 
and like very interested in hearing your thoughts, kind of like in in your mind or in my mind. When I was in that place, I definitely didn't want to feel like I was a burden, but I think I was already doing a lot of judging. I was already judging myself very harshly, incredibly harshly. And to have someone listen to that judgment and, you know, those thoughts that, that were swirling in my head without judgment, it's almost like you have someone to lift that burden, that burden of judge, your own self-judgment from you. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm saying the same thing, but maybe just in a different way. But it's just, I think it's that self-judgment that really, that was crippling, you know? Well, I don't think other people judge us as much as we judge ourselves. Yeah, that's true. So I think that if you walk away from a situation, a conversation that you've had with someone and you, you might have said something that you think is, I shouldn't have said that, I've probably made them feel this way. And you kind of run that conversation over and over in your mind about, oh, I've just said that and I've probably made them feel this way. And you kind of dissect each part of the conversation. And I had this situation a couple of weeks ago where I made a joke that I wasn't happy with the joke that I made. And I was like, oh, I don't think that was you know, appropriate for that situation. And I text my mate afterwards. And I was like, I'm so sorry I said that. And he goes, what did you say? <laughs> it was me catastrophizing what I had said because I'm judging myself for more so than anyone else noticed. Everyone else was in their own bubble. They're all judging themselves. They're judging themselves <laughs> more than they're ever going to judge you. Yeah. So I think you can get caught up in your own self-judgment and your own, own self-worth and your own self-love because I think it's hard to, to see the love that other people have in you if you're not loving yourself. And I think it's hard for you to see the person that you are because you're kind of looking for it externally if you can't see it internally. Mm, that was damn profound. Damn very nice. Um, <laughs> Haughty love. <laughs> um, that catastrophizing is so crippling, even to the extent that it stops us from being able to have conversations in the first place. Like uh, I remember talking to a couple of mates and they had like difficult conversations coming up and they, they would say to me, look, Jerome, it's going to go one of two ways, right? It's either going to go like, and it would be the worst possible case scenario or it's going to go, okay. And I'm like, it's not going to go one of two ways. There is literally an infinite amount of possibilities <laughs> that could arise from this. And you're just choosing like the most catastrophic thought out plan of how it's going to go wrong. But oftentimes, and gee, we've had you on our pod and you've talked to us about this, is that it often doesn't go the worst case scenario. I think there's a... Do you remember what the percentages are here, Con? Yeah, 1% of the time it goes to the worst case. Yeah. 99% of the time it doesn't. And we can get so tied up in just thinking and this is like, it's a heuristic, it's a bias of ours to navigate what is the worst possible thing that's going to occur if I start to open up to Connor, right? And I can catastrophize till the cows come home and it paralyzes you. Like it's paralysis by analysis until you mm. get to a stage where you again, that duct tape comes right back on and your hand casted behind your back and you don't want to talk about stuff again. But I guess stopping the catastrophizing is yeah, really, really important. Yeah. We've talked a lot about 
We've talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky, luckily, we're on a pod. <laughs> nah, I was just playing. Uh, no, we, we, look, we've talked a lot about things that could be helpful. And one thing that we tried to do on our podcast is firstly, we want to try to inspire. And then we want to try to take that inspiration and give ourselves and our listeners something to do with it. Ideally, immediately. What advice do you have for us and our listeners about how we can implement vulnerability in our lives today and beyond? Yeah, I think when we talk about vulnerability, don't forget that there are levels. Don't forget that vulnerability doesn't mean completely opening up to your mate and saying, hey, I've got mental ill health and this is all the shit that's going on in my world. It doesn't have to be like that. Vulnerability is as simple as saying, I'm not very good at vulnerability and telling it to two strangers over a podcast. So my advice, and again, not great at giving advice, but don't think of tackling vulnerability as having these grand, crazy conversations that are going to change your life. That's not the case. For us, it started really, really small. Our conversations in Zoop started with, how's your running going? And if they didn't complete the run, why didn't it go well? And that in itself is allowing for vulnerability to happen. So I think ask interesting and deeper questions that you actually generally want to know about someone else and be ready and open if you're in a safe space and you trust the other person on the other side, you have faith and you have courage and you can trust, then yeah, let's have a more interesting conversation. I'll also put out there, this is just some crazy marketing stuff right here, Con. Real talk cards are a great way <laughs> to, to start yeah. a meaningful moment and open up the path to vulnerability because there's, yeah. there's these question cards that we started. And again, it, like when we talk about vulnerability, it doesn't have to be the crazy big important life things in your life. It can be as easy as talking about your most embarrassing moment, like that's, that's vulnerability. Or like telling someone like, I've got goals this year, this year. Like these are the goals that I want to achieve. That's vulnerability. That's putting yourself out there for judgment. Or even asking someone, when was the last time you shit yourself? Like there's a, a vulnerable <laughs> question. <laughs> <laughs> man, I saw, the, uh, I saw those cards on Instagram and I thought, man, what an awesome idea. What an awesome idea. Yeah, I love it. I'm definitely getting myself a set. On that, yeah. on that, do you guys want to ask us a question now from Real Talk? Yeah, go, Jerome. Oh, can I ask one just to, to circle back? Yeah. Do what you do. Yeah. Uh, Gihan, what's your favorite quote? We went through like four of mine. Do you have a favorite or a My top three? Favorite quote. Goodness, there's so many. <laughs> the one that comes to my mind, this is this, probably not my favorite, but I love this one is uh, by Eric Thomas. He's like the hip-hop preacher. He's like this motivational speaker. He's the guy who has that like really famous video on YouTube, um, Succeed Like As Bad As You Want to Breathe. And he has this like really empowering video where he says, greatness is upon you. Act like it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think about that a lot. Yeah. and, And he also has another one on the idea of like, prepare for opportunities that don't exist yet. So you guys always ask me for one and I give you like two or three. <laughs> two for the last one. <laughs> yeah. That's me. And what do I, I had a question for you. 
what are your core values and what do they mean to you? Yeah, so my core values, I, I actually know these. Um, because I'm I also so read, surprised. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got this one. I because I've also <laughs> read Dare to Lead by, um, by Brene Brown. And as soon as I read that book, I'm like, I'm doing this. I'm sitting down and I'm finding these out. And so I've got two of them because she asks you to only pick two. <laughs> so um, so the, it's compassion and optimism. So I lean on my compassion when I have to have difficult conversations or if I have to have a conversation where, you know, empathy and vulnerability needs to happen. And I lean on my optimism to face the reality that's around me so that I can move forward and continue to live into my values. So Bunima, what does vulnerability look like? What does it look like to you at this present moment? At this present moment, um, I think I'm still learning what it what it looks like, but I think vulnerability just means I really resonated with what you said before, Jerome, when you said it's opening yourself up for judgment. That to me has just stuck with me throughout this entire conversation. But it's it's really opening yourself up to, for judgment, but also like vocalizing your own self judgment in how you perceive yourself as well. I think that's being vulnerable. And then, yeah, just vocalizing it and sharing that with other people. Sharing it with the right people, I think. Yeah, because there's like, you know, to go off quotes, there's, there's a quote that I heard recently that there are two kinds of people in this world. One are the type of people that will always want the best for you. And then the second type are the ones that you can learn something from. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I definitely think it's, it's opening yourself up to the right people. Yeah, thanks for that question. I didn't. Um... These guys are shooting their own podcast. They're going to use it. Like we said, oh, we'll do the intros afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, one, one, one question that I also wanted to ask was this is a bit of a heavy question, but just before we came on, Dr. G and I had, had a bit of a conversation because we were, we were very close childhood friends. Every day after school, we'd go to the nearby primary school and we'd play basketball together. And um, one particular time, I was I was telling him that I was um, contemplating um, taking my own life, and he kind of just, to his credit, he kind of just said, "Come on, man, that's that's just selfish." And it kind of just kickstarted this thought pattern or this thought process in my head. It's like, is it? selfish? Is it? Am I being selfish? At first, you know, I didn't, I certainly didn't say that in the heat of the moment. I actually got quite angry, but it started this whole questioning of what I was actually doing and what I was actually thinking. Obviously I didn't, I didn't get all metacognition on it. I think I I just started to question what I was thinking as a byproduct of that, of that very jarring realization or, or even like pretty much the reaction that I had to what Gian said. I, but I wanted to ask the question to you and I'm going to word it very poorly because I think it, I'm, I'm very interested in your response, but do you think the act of taking your own life or do you think that's selfish? It's a good question. Yeah. It depends on where you're looking at it from. 
I'll admit, when I was younger, I would have said yes. I would have been in G's position and I would have said yes. Now I've got a different perspective on that. And from my own personal experience, it was selfless. It was, I don't want to be here to bend other people who I love. But I didn't have the words to say that. From G's position, and I'm assuming here, maybe G didn't have the words to describe how much you meant to him and that losing you would have impacted him in a way that he thought was selfish. I think with suicide, for someone who's lost someone to suicide, it is completely valid for them to think it's selfish. Completely valid. They've been affected in a way that is pretty hard to describe. And I don't think people who are affected... I think there's like a stigma around that. There's a stigma around how people grieve suicide. And there's no right way to do it. You can feel like that person's been selfish because of how much they meant to you. But if you've never had those thoughts and if you've never been in that position, you can never understand the mindset that you are in in order to take your own life. So I think with that question, it's a bigger question of the human experience and the perception and perspective that you have at that moment. I think for, I don't think anyone who's taken their own life is selfish, but I can understand if you've been affected by it, that it's completely valid to believe that it is. So I think that's a roundabout way of explaining whether suicide is selfish or not. Yeah, that's, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, it, it certainly does, it certainly does challenge what I think because after that interaction, it really just sort of made me realize, yeah, actually, hang on, I think I am being kind of selfish here. But I didn't know why that was the case, really. It was only just because I knew that it'll affect the people around me. But I never thought, I never once thought that maybe Gihan didn't know how to vocalize how much I meant to him. That may not be a reality, but, you know, even just thinking of it that way, for some reason, I find a lot of comfort in that. Yeah, well, it's, I think it can be, it's an interpretation, isn't it? It's an interpretation of what Gihan said, which I think we had this conversation before the podcast is he doesn't remember that. And you remember that like it was yesterday. And yeah, I think that even if it's not true, it doesn't matter. We don't know what the truth is. We can tell ourselves whatever we want. But how old were you at that point, Budama? Oh, I would have been... 16, 17, yeah. How many 16, 17 year old boys are are telling each other that they love them and that they care for them and that they mean the world to them? It's from my perspective and I will believe it that I think that she loved you and cared for you and loved those basketball sessions. And maybe it was selfish that he wasn't going to get those basketball sessions if you weren't there. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. This is such a surreal experience for me. I feel so 
It's just so weird that I can't remember this. And it's, it's so weird that it came up today, but I don't know how to conceptualize it because it's like something I'd have to like make it up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Go back to no, that look, time. But. Yeah. Like to, to your credit, again, like we, we, didn't, we didn't speak about it afterwards. And I never once, never once thought that uh, Gihan like had bad intentions or anything like that. I just, it just made me, it just triggered a different train of thought in my head. I think that that was the real learning for me that just, I don't think that would have happened if it was anyone else. I think if someone else, you know, if I, if I didn't know or didn't trust said that to me, I think I would have handled it very, very differently. I would have just brushed them off. I think because it was you, I was like, yeah, all right, maybe there is some, what's actually going on here? Maybe there is some truth there. And I think that's what, yeah, that's where the trust came into it and, you know, because if you trust, if you trust someone or if you trust one another, like there's nothing you can't really say to each other. We've had this experience a few few times now of seemingly insignificant. I mean, this was not insignificant, but seemingly insignificant moments that turn out to be profound. You know, the moment that you have with a teacher where they say something and it changes your life. They have no idea that it changed your life. Apparently, this moment where I I said something and it put this guy into like this years long journey of <laughs> reflecting on what I said. And I, I was just still playing basketball, completely oblivious. Yeah. <laughs> Jay was just shooting threes and was like, man, that's selfish. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He didn't even realize the words was coming out of his mouth when he was trying to just hit some threes. <laughs> yeah. But I think like, I think it goes to the point, like every moment has the potential to be profound and meaningful, but you don't know which ones. So, it's worthwhile treating every one of them like they can be. Yeah, I completely agree. I think just on that human experience, trying to thought about perspective, like what you were just talking about before, Con, and the power of choice and being able to say that situation was to happen again, Budama, and you have the ability to kind of think outside of the box again and be like, hmm, I don't know if that was the right answer or like, have different perspectives and thoughts and I don't know, like it's that power and ability to like choose and the choice that has happened is like you've obviously thought about it for so long but there are other choices there as well for you to think about it and talk about it in different yeah. ways as well. But yeah, Jay, you're so right in terms of like every moment and this is so profound but like every moment that we have is like it's an opportunity for something great to occur or something terrible to occur but I think, and I was listening actually to neurolinguistic pod that you guys did a little bit ago, and I completely agree yeah. with this, that every opportunity, every moment that occurs has the potential to be something great. But it really comes down to the person and what perspective that they want to put on that event. Because events just happen. But it's our ability to say, this is a life-defining moment right here, or I'm not going to let this, this one moment define who I am. And it happens so regularly and it shouldn't happen to us it should happen because of us yeah absolutely and i also think that every moment is an opportunity for you to live into your values you know it's like how do you how do you lean on your values to get through this something terrible's happened to me but i'm not going to mirror that onto someone else's life or how can i lean on this to be more courageous or to be more kind. Well, it's like that 
take that situation, Baltimore, of you and G, we can flip it in a sense of G said that's selfish and you go, oh, I'll just be, be compassionate here. He just doesn't know how to tell me he loves me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge learning. Yeah. Yeah. So what intrigues me about this, this journey, essentially for Zoop and for you, Connor, and Jerome, your role in, you know, it's hard to have this story without both of you. This story from like essentially what sounds like rock bottom to now. For people in that rock bottom phase of life who may be listening to this, what advice do you have for them? And, and I just want to add, a, add an extra nuance to this. Keeping in mind that in that, if someone's in that mindset, it's a very hard mindset to, to change, right? Like you can't just be like, nah, lean into your values, man. Like it doesn't necessarily work. So I'm, I'm super curious to know what you guys think. Away from the Zoop story, but just digging into my own past, when I've hit rock bottom, there's a couple of things that kept me afloat. The first one was like trying to talk and just try to get things off my chest and to be able to like talk about the things that were going, that was, that I was going through. And I tend to be pretty talkative, but again, we've harped on about vulnerability and sharing safe spaces and the people that I would call would be my best friends. And just to not even talk about rock bottom, just to be able to talk and just get things off my chest, not even have to be about all the terrible things that are going on in my world, but just to be able to have a conversation and engage in connection has definitely like taken me out of places. And then the other one is that I got some like really, really helpful advice from like a lot of my friends, particularly when I started opening up about some of the, the troubles that I was going through. And it's so cliche and it's so annoying to hear when you're in rock bottom and it's probably the last thing that you actually want to hear. But as soon as I started listening to it, I understood it to be true. And that was, it's going to pass. Like this too will pass. Just you have to give it time mm -hmm. and you have to just keep plugging away at the things that you know should be good for you and you will get out of this. Like you are strong, you're courageous, you'll find a way out of it. And those two things combined, I think connection and understanding that there will be a light and that there will be a moment in which this will pass has been really, really helpful. And then a little bonus one, I guess, but the ability to talk about your problems, I think has to first start with you being able to talk about it yourself to yourself. And one of the things that has helped me in the past is like journaling and writing things out. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even have to be written. Sometimes it's literally in a long drive, me just screaming at myself or talking to myself and literally articulating the events that occurred without any judgment, just talking about this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened and taking away any of the perspective. Because uh, I agree with you, G, like when you're in rock bottom, you cannot see the forest from the trees. You can't even tell that, you know, you don't even know when you've actually hit rock bottom because sometimes it just keeps feeling like you're sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. But the things that have helped me to, I guess, keep me afloat in some sense is connection, being able to like journal and talk and have that cathartic moment of even if it's within myself or with other people and then having the, the people on your side telling you like, I've got your back and this is going to pass. And you said, and we'll come to you, Connor. I just want to 
I just want to expand on something. So you said this too will pass. In your experience, and maybe to you as well, Connor, like how long are we talking? And I know, and I know it's not, you can't say like, you know, three and a half months or whatever, but I think it's useful to know how long real, like for someone in a real situation it took because people often underestimate, they often overestimate what they think they can achieve in a few days and underestimate what can be achieved in months and years. So yeah, in your experience, how long are we talking? Um, for me, it probably took me like six months until I started feeling like I was in a better place. But one way to conceptualize this is to view it in the same way that we have like a spectrum of health. And in that same token, I think we also have a spectrum of how we're feeling at any given moment. And that spectrum or continuum goes from like healthy to feeling absolutely terrible. And there's some spots in between. And I think if the expectation is, I just want to feel healthy and I want to get from, let's take this rock bottom analogy, and I would just want to float to the top. The truth of the matter is that with time, you're going to go up and you are going to go down. You're not just going to rise to the top like a deep sea diver. You are going to go up and you are going to have rocks that pull you back down. And then the flotation is going to bring you back up a little bit and then you need to come back down again. I think the thing with time is to view it not necessarily as like, it's going to take you six months. I think it's more about kind of enjoying the growth over that time and... Again, this is so easy to say when I'm not in rock bottom. But one of the things that helped me really, really well was like when I was in dark, deep places, like writing about the things that I was learning about myself, about like what adversity was doing to me and how it could change me. And so it wasn't necessarily like after six months, I feel this way. It was like after six months, I've got a journal like entry of all these other times where I've faced something really, really gross and I can look back at it and with pretty happy eyes. Yeah, like a chronicle of your experiences that you can like lean on or draw from. Yeah, like sometimes I do that through voice memos. And the other day I was just scrolling through my voice memos. I've got like a thousand of these. Oh, I wanted to hear <laughs> some of those. Wow. Some of it is singing related. I'm a terrible singer. I had to delete like 500 of them. Um, He's actually a very good singer. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't you Filipino background? You must be incredible. (laughs) (laughs) It runs in the veins. Um, But even then, like to what you just said, like, yeah, like this chronicle of, you know, life events and getting to read them back or listen to them back is, it's like reading a book. it's, Mm. It's so... I don't know, it's so enlightening. But yeah, anyways, that's a roundabout answer of saying, I don't think there actually is a time that, you know, that we can place on how long someone is going to take. It's going to be a journey and it's going to be a ride. For me, it took me like six months or so. But to be completely honest, like as I talked about this, this continuum, I could easily go back down a rock bottom at some stage. Like it's just bound to happen. Sounds like you're leaning into your value of faith, isn't it? Or having faith. Courage, yeah. Courage. Connor? Yeah, I think Jerome has hit the nail on the head. For me, it probably... For me to get out of that rock bottom situation was probably a couple of years. It wasn't quick. But that doesn't mean there weren't moments of light. And there weren't moments of... oh. 
I'm not there, but I'm back there the next day. And now I, now I treat it as Jerome said, as an ongoing process. So it's not something that I take for granted. It's, I take each day as it comes and something that you've taught me, G, is to feel it and do it anyway in the sense of do happiness instead of trying to achieve it. Once I accepted the way I was feeling and in turn accepted myself, then I started to feel a bit better through journaling, gratitude practice, through those things. And you can do it and go, what's the point? Because I don't feel any different. But you're getting the reps in. You're getting the reps into. You can just see Dr. G coming through here, can't you? Yes. <laughs> You're like channeling your inner Dr. G. <laughs> but it is. It's, it's, it's yeah. getting those reps in, whether it's getting out of bed to go for a walk, whether it's sending that text message, whether it is making yourself a cup of tea. It doesn't matter. Like you don't know how it's going to make you feel. You can't control that. But what you can control is what you do. And that's one of the things that, you know, you can't take for granted. You can control getting out of bed to get a, to get a shower. So you might not feel any better, but geez, that's a big win. That's a big win if you've done that. So regardless, at mm. the end of your day, you can look back and go, I still feel like shit, but I did these things. doesn't matter. I'll do it again tomorrow. And I'll do it again and I'll do it again and I'll do it again. And you're putting the odds in your favor to feel better. And I think that's just something you've got to remind yourself of. You've got a choice in that sense. But yeah, I think it's, it's starting with the basics. I think it's yeah. the best definition of suicide I've heard is that it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I think it's so useful to know, you know, whether it's six months or two years or 10 years, I think it's so useful. It will get better. This too will pass. You know, if it's not okay, you know, it'll all be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end yet. And just being able to turn up, regardless of whether you're feeling absolutely shit or not, is powerful. Yeah. I still like, would like to, it is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. However, it's something that a lot of people don't understand. And it's a position in which the person feels like they have exhausted all options. Even though majority of the time they haven't, that's the feeling. And it's a tricky situation because when we feel all of these things and we feel a lack of self-worth, a lack of self-love. We don't have drive. We don't have passion. We don't have purpose. It can feel like, what's the point? And as much as there is a point and as much as there are solutions and as much as there is help out there, we've still got to understand that the person going through that is going through something that we don't understand. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts on how from the friends or family's position where we can 
hold the space. I mean, listening is is such a theoretically it's simple. You just shut up. You just <laughs> listen. <laughs> but in practice, it's quite complex, isn't it? Like it's it's not as easy as it would seem. It's a skill. Mm. How how do we build that skill as friends and family? Yeah, good question. How did you do it? I think getting the reps in. Like you guys were saying it before, like, you know, get the reps in in terms of like doing your healthy habits, but get the reps in by having interesting and more vulnerable conversations with your friends. Like, mm. like get to a stage and gee, every time I call you, like we, we say, like we're, we're trying to get away from like, hey, how are you? And try, <laughs> try to find more interesting conversations that from the get-go. Because I think some of the times that I don't listen is when it's just the same monotonous stuff from my mates, right? Like I've just heard, I've heard the same story of how your day has gone, Con. Like, mm. I know, you were busy. I get it. But <laughs> when we have the reps to really listen to what someone's actually sharing with us, that allows for that opportunity for us to practice a, a skill. And that skill is being active in the listening. It's trying to conceptualize, not just in your own, the listener's, perspective, but also trying to conceptualize what does that mean for that person who's telling me the story as well. These are skills that we need to probably improve. And one way of not doing good listening is by using your phone like all the time and only texting people and not looking people in the eye or, you know, being Mm -hmm. present with people as they're talking to you, which I think is probably one of the issues that's coming around in our social media age. But yeah, I I think you got to get the reps in. And to do that, you need to have interesting conversations. I also think it's, it's a simple question of asking, when someone's talking to you about something, is that question of, what do you need from me right now? Do you need advice? Do you need me to listen? Do you need me to support? And this is like me and my past. Most of the time, would I want to fix it. You know, I, I, you're feeling this way. Okay, what can I do? Like, let's, um, mm. let's go get a coffee. Yeah. Let's, let's do this. Or when I spoke to people, oh, you need to see a psychologist or you need to do this. You need to do that. And in my mind, I'm like, you don't know what the hell I need. You, have, <laughs> you haven't asked. Like, because if you would have yeah. asked me, I would have said, I just need you to listen. Or can we go for a walk? I think asking people what they, what they want and what they need at that moment is key. It's such a big question because now, and now in our, in our group, it's the first question we ask. When someone opens up, it's like, okay, what do you need from me right now? Something we all do every day. I have a conversation with Jerome. What do you need from me? Thanks, Toddy. What do you need me to do right now? And sometimes it's, man, I just need to get this off my chest and I need, to, I need you to listen. And I'll say it. And at the end of the conversation, I go, okay, well, if you need anything else, I'm here for you. Like I've got your back. Yeah, I'm pretty cognizant as well that like as we were just retelling our story as well that like we weren't great at this. In fact, when, you know, you opened up a couple of times when we were on those holidays about what you were going through. But also, you'd also told me about times when you were dealing with um, like your breakup and your parents' divorce and all the things that were going on in your world. And from that was quite early on. And some of the things that I was doing, like, yeah, I agree. Like, I'm the same. Like, I'm a fixer as well. 
and I was trying to find solutions to problems. And I actually had to learn from those reps, right? There were reps mm. that I actually had with Con of me trying things out. And the things that I was trying out weren't working because I was trying to fix, you know, how he was feeling and the things that, were, that he was going through. I was <laughs> not entirely thinking about his story and listening and engaging in the story. And it took multiple reps and multiple times for me to feel like, I don't think I've nailed that one to then finally be able to like, oh, that's how you listen. You just, you don't have to fix anything. You just have to be there, empathize. <laughs> but that only comes through, yeah, like the repetitions. Excellent. Yeah. Shall we? <laughs> <laughs> um, deep in thought. <laughs> yeah, man. Because I'm, I'm a little bit more of a reflective learner. I'm, I'll be really interested to... I can't wait to listen back to this episode and just because I know I'll have other questions for you. <laughs> so, so Round yeah, two. I just I'd Round love two. to yeah just go for a walk and and let this these ideas marinate. But yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for yeah. listening. And I I personally just want to acknowledge Jerome and Con. I often tell my wife this. It's a random thing to say. But I tell her often, probably more than needed, is that I can't believe I'm friends with these guys. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, yeah, just truly blessed, truly blessed to to know you guys um, and to get to interact with you so often. I uh, don't take it for granted. I, I learn a lot, a lot from you. And doing this podcast, I was like, dang, these guys are better than I thought. <laughs> 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 so I appreciate both of you. And I actually want to acknowledge you, Buddhima. Like, yeah, man, th- thank you for your honesty today and your vulnerability. This is some stuff that I haven't heard of until today. And for what it's worth, just want to make sure this is uh, genuine. I think it is, is that I do love you, man. Like, I, I really do. I was telling you just before the podcast, like our friendship and now this podcast is changing me in in a really, really positive way. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Kian. And likewise, man, I love you too. Yeah, for sure. It's hard to kind of vocalize stuff like that for me, but I, I really do. I think it's important to say it and... You, you could probably see I'm like shifting around in my seat because it's so <laughs> kind of just. I'm gonna keep saying that. that <laughs> just <wanna shed>. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually it's it's beautiful to watch. I, I'm so, genuinely tearing uh, up right now. <laughs> Thank you so much for everything that you've given me, and uh, yeah, just especially with this podcast, and I completely agree. It's changing me as well. Yeah. You, yeah. Buddha, definitely lied at the start of this episode when Big you time. said that. You weren't very good at vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. But is like actually like well, actually checkmate. Because <laughs> yeah. I've got you guys. Imagine if I was good at it. <laughs> I'll tell you some serious shit. Yeah, I'll, I'll say I'm I'm just a white belt at this point. You know? still, still getting my yeah three stripes. Three stripes. Yeah. <laughs> no, but we we also appreciate yeah. you opening up about your mental health experience. And the conversations that you guys have had, sure. the questions that you've had for us, we're, we are incredibly appreciative for both of you. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I feel so privileged. Thank you. Boys, maybe do you guys have any 
maybe one thing you want to leave our listeners with and how we can connect with you, how our audience can connect with you. Yeah, for sure. Um, us at the Zoop Network, we're running a fundraiser called Nine for Nine, which is nine minutes of cold water immersion throughout August for the nine Australian lives lost to suicide every day. We're running events throughout August each Sunday, ranging from Sandringham to Brighton Bath to Mordialic to Bond Beach and Frankston. And within those events, we're going to be running these mental health workshops with G is actually going to be one of our, our special speakers as well. And all the money and the proceeds that we get from this goes to Batir, which is a for-purpose mental health organization run by young people for young people. And as we've said so many times on this pod just today, that we're trying to shift some cultures in the world at the moment and we're trying to destigmatize a lot of these things. And I think for us, that solution is around changing at a grassroots level. So the money will go there and we've got our sights set on trying to raise $50,000 to this stage, I think we've already raised 10000 And if you're looking for more details to see if you want to get involved or even support the cause or donate to, you know, Batir through us, look up 9for9.com.au or follow us on the Zoop Network Instagram page or Facebook page. And also check out the zoopnetwork.com for more info about some of the Real Talk cards and some of the other events that we're running. Have I missed anything there, Con? Cheers, you're good. He's got that down pat. <laughs> <laughs> I actually steal it all from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's beautiful. I think last thing to leave with is, you know, vulnerability isn't a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of strength. Check in on your mates, hold that space and ask them what they need from you. Thank you for listening to the Solve for Greatness podcast with your hosts, Dr. G and Budima. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and share. See you soon.